All right. Hey, what's going on, Valley family? Welcome to the online campus. And you know what? Shout outs to, to anybody else who's, who's maybe not a part of the Valley family. Maybe you're kind of a random passerby and you stumbled across us. Maybe you're a skeptic, right? Maybe somebody passed even this link to you knowing that you're a little bit of a skeptic and they knew that we were in a series called Skeptics Welcome. So they wanted to uh, see if you would stop by too. Well, welcome to you as well. You're kind of one of my people, honestly. I, I was a skeptic for a long, long, long time. So uh, I'm not saying I know exactly where you're coming from, but maybe, maybe a little bit. Um, the last three weeks we've been in this series, Skeptics Welcome. We've talked about um, quite a range of things, honestly. If, if, uh, I would highly recommend going back and watching these, seri- these, these messages if you haven't already. Dr. Greg, our lead pastor, um, is the one that kicked off the series, did the last three weeks. I'm actually stepping in today because Doc's um, youngest daughter is getting married. So they're away, they're down um, at the wedding and, and your boy, Pastor Randy, the executive pastor here at Valley, is kind of stepping in and just, and just uh, gonna, gonna give it a shot today. I got a good message, I think. I think God has got a message for you guys. So first couple weeks, we talked about, um, well, we talked about the foundations of things like the foundations of universities. We talked about the foundation of, of even a lot of like famous scientists. We talked about a lot of different breakthroughs that have come through Christians over the history of the world. Um, founders of hospitals, founders of universities. We talked about the abolitionist movement and how that was driven in large parts by believers who believed that slavery was wrong and that God wanted to change things. So they were trying to bring the kingdom of God by making positive change. Such exciting stuff. Uh, Today we're going to take a little bit of a, we're going to shift gears a little bit. I think instead of, um, instead of hearing what other people had to say about the word, although that's very, very, very valuable, uh, today we're going to shift gears a little and we're going to hear what the word has to say about itself. Um, the Christianese, I guess, if you would, word for, for uh, this series would be kind of like apologetics, like you're kind of uh, maybe defending the gospel or, and bringing these other people and their stands on the gospel into it, which is great, which is cool. There's a place for it. Um, there's a guy named Charles Spurgeon, widely considered one of the best preachers that ever lived. And, and he had this quote, which I like. He says that scripture is like a lion. He says, he says, who ever heard of defending a lion, right? Just turn it loose. It will defend itself. And I, and I agree with that. I think, I think there's value to, to hearing about these things and studying apologetics. But also I think there's value to, to the idea that sometimes the best way to defend a lion is to turn it loose. So let's, let's get down into it a little bit. Let's talk about... Um, the word and what even the word has to say about itself. Uh, let's kick it off with Hebrews 4.12. Hebrews 4.12. Uh, this verse has stuck out to me for a long time. It's, it's, a, it's a great one. For the word of God is living and active. And the skeptics are like, what? Living and active? Okay. The word of God is living and active. Stay with me. We'll explain it. Sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Living and active. Uh, The Greek word for word, right? The Greek word for word, as in word of God, the Greek word is uh, logos, logos, like logo. You've heard of logo, like a company has a logo, like Nike has the swish or whatever, logo. In Greek, it's logos, right? It, uh, it's interesting. It actually comes from the same root as another word that we know, legos. So in Greek, it's logos, and it's 
rooted in the root word Legos. And you would know Legos from those toys that maybe you played with when you were a kid, or if you're an adult, you might have stepped on one barefoot uh, at one point in time in your life. But Legos, right, Legos. Uh, Legos um, is interesting because it is that word that we use for the toy is actually from the Greek. It's a totally a Greek word. And it means to construct, to build. And biblically, a lot of time it's used as when you're like saying something, you're stringing together words and you're constructing them into a sentence or an idea. So that is legos. And word is logos, right? Logos and legos. It's kind of interesting. You'll probably never forget where the, the toy legos gets its name from again to build, to construct. It makes sense. You're building those blocks together. But anyway, Paul had this to say about the word. Uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for what? For clubbing people over the head with the Bible, right? Clubbing people over the head with it. That's what scripture is for. Uh, well, I joke, but maybe that's not such a great joke because I think that that's a lot of the history. Unfortunately, uh, I think a lot of people have, have done that and gotten the wrong idea of what scripture is for. But Paul is setting it straight right here, saying it's God-breathed. It's useful for all these things so that we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. But God breathed. And I want to I wanna kind of um, take a minute here to talk about that idea of Scripture being God-breathed because it's a callback. If you know your Bible a little bit, you know uh, Genesis, or at least the story of Genesis with Adam and Eve and all that stuff. When Adam was created from the dust of the earth, God did something back then to make him come alive because if God had not have breathed his breath into Adam's nostrils, he would have just been a body. He would have just been meat. But God, the Bible says that God breathed into his nostrils. The Hebrew word is ruach. That's kind of a fun one to say because it's got that, that guttural uh, sound that English doesn't really have. But ruach, the ruach of God, it means breath. It also in Hebrew means spirit or wind. God breathed his spirit, his breath into Adam, that body, and it became alive. And the argument here is that Paul is saying that Scripture is God breathed with God's Spirit, that God has breathed, because otherwise it would just be a book. It would just be words and letters on a page. But God has done something special, and he has breathed his life into that word, into these Scriptures. Very similar to breathing his life into Adam. It's the power of God's breath. The power of God's breath. But God breathed into this book and made it alive. And skeptics are like, yeah, right. And I also, at one point in time, was like, yeah, right. If I could figure out which way is up on this thing. Hey, there we go. Breathed into this book and made it alive. Remember from that Hebrews 4.12, living and active? Then through these pages, this now living word, if you will, people read it and come to faith in Jesus. They come to life. We see, we breathe it in and are brought to life by the breath of God. We breathe it in. He, Scripture being God breathed, God inspired, and then we open that Scripture 
and breathe it in and are brought to life by the breath of God, by the spirit of God, the ruach of God. Now that living word internalized, alive in me, and having made me truly alive in Christ, I breathe back out to you by preaching the same living word and someone out there potentially comes alive in return. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that kind of interesting how it's designed to work? God breathes into his word. We inhale his word. It changes us, brings us to life. And then we ideally are breathing it back out again, breathing the word back out again. And someone else will breathe it in and come to life. And then ideally they will do the same and share the word too. You see, God made it this way. He designed his creation this way to testify of his truth. I breathe back out to you by preaching the same living word. And then, if you remember, the word says that faith comes from hearing, hearing the word, the word of God. Your very breath testifies about the life of God. Ecclesiastes says it like this. It says that when we actually die, remember Adam was made from the dust, for then the dust will return to the earth. Talking about us. Someday our bodies, the dust, will return to the earth and the spirit, this is in Hebrew, the spirit here, that's actually breath, the ruach, and the ruach, the breath of God that he gave us will return to God who gave it. Now if you're tracking with me, the logos and the legos, right? What I've done there as I've strung together the first 10 minutes of this message, I've constructed the words kind of like legos, right? And I've built a little bit of an argument there. That's the meaning of this Greek word, these Greek words. Sometimes if we don't scratch below, beneath the surface, we miss all this stuff, but the Bible is loaded. And that's why you really start stepping into this idea of being living and active. Because the more you scratch, the more there is. And the more you dig, the further you see it goes. It is life-changing power. It changed a person like me. Homeless, anti-God. The power of God brought and breathed his life into me. See, a little bit later, God uses John to reveal a deeper mystery about the breath and the word. And he riffs on Genesis a little bit. John 1.1, it's the first words of John's gospel. If you remember, the first words of Genesis are what? Even, even many non-believers know this. It is in the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the first line from Genesis. John is calling back. He's making a parallel comparison. And he is saying, in the beginning, only two books in the Bible that start with in the beginning. John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And you might ask, you might ask, through all things, through him all things were made, even the, even the bad things? 
That's a perfectly reasonable question. If all things were made by him or through him, does that include the bad things? Well, biblically, even Satan is a created being. It's actually a great lie of Satan to try to claim that he is never created, that he is co-equal with God, that it's like the yin and the yang, the good and the bad, and that together they are equal. It's absolutely false. Even Satan was a created being. So then why does God allow bad things? This is an age-old question, and even, even myself, I, I've struggled with this over the years because I'm not immune to suffering, right? Like, I've been through it. Many, all of you have been through it. We've all been through it. That's what life means. You're going through it in some way or another at some point in time, going through it. So why does God, does God allow evil, right? I think it has to do with, with choice, and I think it has to do with control. I think, I think it has to do with it's kind of like love is risky in a way. Like I think about my daughters. Now I got two daughters. They're, they're six and they're three. Man, my three-year-old, <laughs> my, three, my three-year-old can throw a tantrum, man. She can throw a tantrum. And sometimes I wish I could just control those tantrums. And, and of course, I'm a parent. I can, I can maybe help to diffuse things or, or try to like build her up and teach her other tools uh, besides throwing a tantrum or whatever. But that girl can throw a tantrum. And I think about it sometimes, right? If I could control her, if she was a robot instead of a child, I could just program her to say, I love you, daddy. I love you, daddy. Yes, daddy. You are amazing, daddy. I love you, daddy. But... What would that really mean? Is there, is there, what is that? Is that love? Is that even a, a person? Is that my child anymore? A robot? Because my girl can maybe throw a super tantrum. She might scream and cry and stomp her feet. She loves to stomp her feet and cross her arms and go, hmm, like that. It's like a cartoon. It's so cute. That's part of the problem. It's so cute that it's difficult to correct, right? But she'll stomp her feet, cross her arms and go, hmm, throws these tantrums, but there are times when even though I'd love to control that out of her, and we're working on helping her, there are times where she will snuggle up with daddy, she'll crawl into my arms, she'll put her like little head in her hair, like in my neck or something, head on my chest, and she'll say, I love you, daddy. Actually, says, dada, I love you, dada. I love you, dada. Can a robot do the same thing? Does that mean the same thing if I just completely rule out all possibility of anything bad happening, any kind of attitude happening with that girl, anything? If I rule out every possibility except for loving me, is that still love? I think that's where we come into this idea of the, the problem of, of pain and suffering in the world. I think in order for God to really love his children, like at the beginning, to try to love means sometimes to release the control a little bit. And I think we see that in what happened with Adam and Eve. I think that's what the story is kind of all about. What, what I think God wants from us, and if we're honest, we all make our mistakes. We've all fallen way short of like God's standard in probably so many ways. Uh, 
if, that, if the standard is perfection, which is what God is by definition perfect, it's like we ain't never going to build our way up to that standard, right? It's like you could, you could fill your life with good works, but without Jesus and the grace of God, you ain't never going to get across that dividing line into the fellowship with a perfect God. We are by definition imperfect people. But for as much as I sometimes am disobedient and maybe I'm throwing tantrums, I think God the Father loves when I'm like, Lord, I just want to spend time with you. I, I don't want to care about the things of the world, God. I don't want to be just buried by anxiety. I don't want to be worried about food and clothing and our house and provision and money and page and all these things. I don't want to be worried about that, God. I want to put all those aside and I want to spend time with you, Lord. I love you, God. I think those are special moments between us and God our Father. Even though we maybe make mistakes, which we all do, I certainly do. And as the story goes back there in Eden, we know that mankind, well, they chose death instead of life. God's children made the conscious decision to disobey him, to distrust him. Did God really say that? Whispered the serpent back there. Did he really say that? Is he trying to hide something from you? Is he trying to keep something from you? He just doesn't want you to be happy. Go ahead, eat the fruits, become like God for yourselves. Then you can decide what's right and wrong. What do you need God for? He's telling you not to eat from that tree. What do you need him for? You make that decision. You decide what's right and wrong, what's good and evil for yourself. And they ate, they ate that fruit, and we've been doing that ever since. Their eyes were opened in that moment, the Bible says. And since then, with eyes open, everybody does what's right in their own eyes. Resulting in the world history of tragedy, suffering, and death. The inaugural act of, the, of, of leaving the garden after they ate that fruit was Adam and Eve's own children, the only two, own two sons, one killed the other. And then the history just went on and repeated itself. Blood and violence. Everybody just doing whatever they felt like doing. Death came to all, but God is still life. John 1, 4, and 5, it says, In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And that is also, if you're following, if we're tracking what John is saying, that's an echo, an intentional parallel and echo of Genesis, right? Genesis, let there be lights, right? And here it's talking about in the beginning, John kicks off and he says, the light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. The Greek there for overcome, and sometimes you get some maybe different translations. You might get um, darkness has not understood it. 
Darkness has not overcome it. You might get darkness has not grasped it. They have not, has not grasped the light. The Greek there is kind of like has not been able to kind of capture it, uh, even to extinguish it. Darkness cannot defeat the light. The light is too strong. We even see that in nature. Wherever darkness is, if light steps into the room, darkness flees. Light is by nature more powerful than darkness. And it's telling the story of God. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Darkness cannot overcome it. The cross, even the death of Jesus himself, even when death surrounded Jesus and took him down to the grave momentarily. Even the depths of the grave, the depths of darkness in the darkest moment in the history of the world could not overcome the light of Christ. The gates of hell shall not prevail. Jesus says in Matthew, what an encouraging word and reminder for us, God's children, those of us who are God's children. And we'll get to that in a moment. And as we're doing this kind of like skeptics welcome kind of a series, and as I was preparing this word, it was like I was, I was reminded of my own, you know, frailties and shortcomings and my own unbelief, right? You can be like face to face with like the word and how dynamic and living and active it is. And then two minutes later, I'm like eating cheese balls, forgetting about God, you know, and then trying to come back and be like, no, no, I want to be here. I want to, I want to be with you, God. I want to walk with you, Lord. And then five minutes later, forgetting in a moment where I'm like exasperated or tired or whatever that it might be. It's just, it's just human nature. It's just human nature. I think that we are all skeptics in a way. Even Jesus' own followers at the time who walked with him at the time were continually struggling with unbelief and skepticism. Even when Jesus was doing crazy things like raising people from the dead. It's in our nature in a way, right? So we need to fight with that a little bit. We've got to fight with that darkness in a little bit and allow the light to shine into our hearts to chase away that unbelief. And the best way sometimes to do it is through that living breath, God, God's breath inspired, God breathed scripture. Man, that took like 10 minutes to say. Sorry about that. as skeptics, if we all kind of struggle a little bit with it, like another example would be, I, I, maybe, maybe you're like me, like you worry about the state of the world, right? You worry about what's going on around you. You worry about the world, like what is happening? What is happening? It seems like, you know, I can allow myself to become overly anxious, fearful, worried for my children, worried about, hey, what's gonna happen and how are we gonna do this? And, and if this happens, if the world zigs this way, like how do we, you know, all these things as a father, as a, as a husband, I can struggle with that all day long. I can let my mind run with anxiety. But then am I in unbelief? Because the word of God reminds me 
reminds me things, reminds us things like Psalm 33. Psalm 33, the Lord merely spoke, remember, spoke the power of that breath, that spirit. The Lord merely spoke and the heavens were created. He breathed the word and all the stars were born. He assigned the sea its boundaries and locked the oceans in vast reservoirs. Again, Genesis imagery here coming through in Psalms when God divided the land from the seas, right? Let the whole world fear, it says. It goes on to say, Let the whole world fear the Lord and let everyone stand in awe of him. Fear like, oh, I'm terrified of God because he's a bad guy, he's gonna hurt me. No, sometimes it's just like a healthy fear of like something that big that created the heavens and the earth, that created the sun and stuff, whatever created the sun, I'm scared, right? Like a little bit, just like that kind of power and glory is wild. It just, it just intimidates, right? It just intimidates me a little bit. I think it's healthy to know who we're dealing with. Psalm 33, 9 to 11, it goes on and says, for when he spoke, the world began. It appeared at his command. Again, speaking, breath, word. The Lord frustrates the plans of the nations and thwarts all their schemes. I want you to hear that. I want you to let that penetrate your heart a little bit. If you struggle with anxiety of where the world is heading and what's going on today, let that sink in. Let that word take root in your heart. The Lord frustrates the plans of the nations and thwarts all their schemes, but the Lord's plans stand firm forever. His intentions can never be shaken. Whew. And the good news, right, is what joy for the nation, the people whose God is the Lord, whose people he has chosen as his, as his inheritance. That's good news when something that big and that powerful, the creator of all things, is for you and not against you. How amazing, right? The gospel starts to make sense a little bit. The gates of hell shall not prevail, Christian. Cast your worries and your cares upon him because he's good. And now that word, life itself, that light of all mankind enacted its rescue plan to bring the creation now in bondage to misery and suffering and death, to bring the creation back to its original intended state of life and light and goodness. Remember, God said, let there be light and saw that the light was good. That was his first word in the Bible. The first words of God is let there be light and then he sees that it is good. So now John continues in this echo of Genesis. John uh, 1, 9 to 11. It says the true light, not the sun, Right? The sun is like the biggest light that we know. The sun is just a representation, a symbol, a representative of God, of Christ himself. God created the heavens and the sun kind of represents him. Gives light to all things. But this here in the word is taking it and doubling down and saying that the true light of Christ that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. 
He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. You see, humans had forgotten him, had turned their backs on him. Frankly, some of them didn't want to hear anything from him. They didn't even want to know. They saw, some of them saw the deeds. They saw the healings and the miracles, and they still wanted to stop their ears and say, man, I'm going to do me. And if what you're doing starts to affect me, we're going to have some, some pushback. God came into the world, and the world didn't recognize him. Humans had forgotten his voice, the sound of his voice from the, the word from the beginning. But you know who did not forget the sound of his voice? The wind and the waves. When Jesus said, be still to the storm, they remembered the voice of their creator from long ago and they obeyed. That true light came into the world. But the world did not recognize him. John 1, 12 and 13, yet to all who did receive him, and to be fair, some did, not many, if you, if you actually look at Jesus' ministry, like, you know, doing miracles and healings and all these things, it's like a bunch of people start following him, and then towards the end of his ministry, it's less and less and less, and he gets to the cross, and it's actually everybody abandons him. He dies alone on the cross. But to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, and how do they believe in his name? If not by hearing his word that breath, that spirit being breathed into them, into their hearts, and them coming to life in faith. Those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, not because their family was, was descended physically from Jesus, not because a human decision or a husband's will, hey, let's have a baby, no, but born of God. This is where we get the concept of being born again, one of the places being born again by the will of God, by almost the word of God. They believed in his word. It goes on, John 1, 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. They're testifying now, man. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Man, dwelling there is actually, you might see it in some English translations, and it's super clunky sounding because it's not like a word that we use in modern English, but you might find it. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Is actually the Greek word, tabernacled among us. He tented with us. He came down, put on a temporary kind of body, physical body, and walked around with us. And that tabernacled among us kind of a feeling, kind of a, kind of a sense, is a callback because if you remember in, in, um, in the Israelites' time in the wilderness, they went around the desert. They had a portable, what they called the tabernacle of Moses. And everywhere they went, they would 
pack up the tabernacle and they would go to a new place and they would put it down and they would set it back up and they would go inside and they would meet with God in this tabernacle in the wilderness that they carried around with them because they were nomadic. It was like a portable temple. They brought the presence of God with them everywhere they went. And let me tell you something. Jesus coming, becoming flesh and tabernacling, dwelling among us is actually the realization of what that tabernacle of Moses was pointing to all the way back then. God was going to put on flesh and dwell, physically dwell among his people. Do you see how the word is living and active? Do you see? Can you hear? I hope you can hear. Dwelt with us made his home with us, tabernacled or tented among us, which is interesting because that's how Paul later describes our physical bodies. Imagine that, as tents, question mark? 2 Corinthians 5, for we know that when this earthly tent we live in is taken down, that is, when we die and leave this earthly body, we will have a house in heaven, an eternal body made for us by God himself and not by human hands. So we see that, there, that we are, in a way, I want you to follow me here. In a way, we are kind of together with those sojourners of old, with those nomads of old. We have our Physical bodies are tents that we are kind of bringing around with us just like the Israelites were back in the day. They were living in tents, walking around. Pilgrims in temporary tents who, like Abraham, Hebrews says of Abraham, that we are looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Listen to me. When you don't know God, this is it. This is all you got. A lot of, all of us have probably been there. We thought this was it. Nothing going on after. You, you turn off the lights and lights out, man. It's done forever. So if you have that kind of mentality, if that's your worldview, then this is all there is. But you are not merely just your body. This is temporary. And to take it a step further, your feelings and desires are not God. So don't treat them as something that needs to constantly be catered to. Oh, I'm just following my heart, Pastor. No, no, don't do it. Philippians says it like this. Philippians 3, Paul says, For as often... For as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears. And I want you to remember the with tears. He's not happy about this. Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Some translations where it says their God is their belly, we'll say their God is their appetite. Their God is their stomach. Their God is their desires, their flesh, whatever that they desire. They live only for their desires and seek to fulfill them. So money, 
sex, control, comfort, power, pleasure. The seeking of those things is their ultimate goal in life. That becomes their God. Their minds are set on earthly things. They don't have the word of God in them. Existence becomes simply an endeavor to fulfill their desires. They're still doing whatever's right in their own eyes, minds set on earthly things. Instead of living like that, we should live as if we believe in what's to come. And what's to come? The return of the king. And I ain't talking about the Lord of the Rings. The return of the capital W, word of God. The word. The one described like four times in the book of Revelation as the one having the double-edged sword in his mouth. Old sword mouth or whatever. And it's like, if you don't know, it just is a, is a ridiculous sounding, you know, image. It's like he's going to show up riding a horse with a big old sword in his mouth. That's weird. It's like, a, like, is it, it's like the sword swallowing people. No, it's not a physical sword. It's the sword of the spirit. It's actually the breath of his word. Because he doesn't need a physical sword, man. All he's got to do is speak the word. He can control the waves and the sea, the sky, the sun, the planets. He can control the entire, whatever he wants. He don't need a physical sword. He has the sword of the spirit, the breath, the word of his breath, the breath of his word. Remember, we started this with Hebrews 4. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. Penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Well, the next verse is this. Verse 13, it says, Nothing in creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. You see, that sword pierces to the heart. He can see everything. All our thoughts and intentions, all our emotions, all of our, all of our motivations. Sometimes we do things and they might even look like we're doing these altruistic good things, good works. It might look like that to other people, but on the inside in our heart, that spirit of God, that sword of the spirit can penetrate so deep that it's like, actually, Randy, you're just trying to look good in front of those people. You just really wanted them to see you doing those things so that they would go and tell each other how awesome you are. Your heart actually wasn't in trying to serve those people. Your heart was in trying to be front and center. <laughs> How deep and sometimes deceptive are the motivation of the heart. But that spirit of God will uncover everything. It knows everything. That sword pierces to the heart and the word says that he will judge the living and the dead. You need to turn to him before it's too late. 
I know that's not politically correct, but oftentimes what's politically correct is biblically incorrect, and it's been that way since forever. Turn to him. That's all it takes. Turn to him. Receive that word into your heart. Turn to him. And truth be told, I do think that we're all skeptics in one way or the other. And we need to allow that light to wash over us. We need to abide in that light, in that life. He sees us anyway. All those things that we, we want to kind of like hold on to. Oh God, you can have all this stuff. You can kind of have everything that I put in the outside of this little boundary line I'm setting here. But I want to keep my finances, God. A lot of them preachers are scumbags. A lot of those people are out to get me. I don't want to help that person over there because, I don't know, whatever. I don't want to change who I am, Lord. I don't, wanna, I don't want you to, to come inside what I consider my identity, God. You can have everything else, but I kind of want to keep what's in here. Maybe my desires, I want control of this. You can have everything else, God, but I want control of this. I actually want control of my children, real control. I want them to do what I want them to do. But God, you can have everything else. No, you can't have that part of me. Often what we tell God, even when we don't realize it. But I say give it all up and surrender it all because he's a better king than you will ever be. He's a better God than we could ever be. So Lord, we want you, Father, to be our king in all the big and little ways. And we trust your rule and reign is so much better than ours, God. Help us to surrender before you, Lord. Help us to have hands open, arms raised high before you, Lord. You are the God, the King of heaven and earth. You created all these things with a word. How much greater you are than us, Lord. We just, we just, We just want you to have all of us, God. And give us the grace to walk that out when it gets tough. Everything. Lord, we don't want anything off limits. That your light would shine in us and through us. Lord, that your word would speak to us and through us, God. Your life would be in us and from us, God. Thank you, Lord. And if you've ever, never, if you've never received the Lord before, if you've never felt like you're a Christian before, if you've never had this kind of like hit in a way that I would argue is not from a man who was sitting at home trying to type up some words that sounded good. I would argue that because it's based here, that it's based in the breath of God, the spirit of God. And if you are in a way supernaturally experiencing this word as living and active, that has nothing to do with this guy, then I would like you to to share this prayer with me. These can't be my words, though. They have to be your words. If you just repeat a prayer, you could teach a parrot words. It doesn't mean that it understands what it's saying. It doesn't mean it's from the heart. I fear that a lot of people 
sometimes pray this prayer or say this prayer once or something, and then they go on and live their lives, and that's just what it was. That was their, like, Jesus moment, check the box, peace out. Never thought about him again. That is not what the life of a Christian, that is not what the life, the life of God is about. The Bible says this, it says, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. And then it also says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So Lord God, we come to you, Lord. Maybe for that first time, God, we come to you as as sinners in need of a savior. We come to you in need of that life that only you can bring, that light that only you can bring, God. And we confess with our mouths through the word and the breath that you have breathed into us, Lord. We breathe it back out in faith and we say, you are Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. We confess it with our lips, Lord. We invite you, God, to walk with us, Lord. Help us walk with you, Lord, every day for the rest of our lives, Lord, that this would be a new beginning today, that the day that the light, the light came on in our lives, that we are forever changed. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Thank you, Lord. Amen.